0: All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark. And also we will be looking at where Mark refers to in the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. So find those places too, Isaiah and also Mark. And then, of course, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, we'll be looking at that also. And so this morning, uh, as I begin uh, after the introductions, the Gospel of Mark, We're going to be looking at uh, several things this morning, and of course, afterwards, we will have a baptism service. We have three people getting baptized this morning. So let's have a word of prayer as I begin. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we come before you in the only name we can come before you in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask you always, Lord, to give us help to renew our mind by the Word of God to... uh, Allow us to not to be pressed into the mold of the world, but that we would be transformed, and that we would be transformed so we could know the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Thank you, Lord, that as we approach this gospel that is going to ultimately communicate who you are and what you've done, help us now to grasp, have a greater grasp, a clearer grasp on the person of Christ so, Lord, we can have a better more intimate relationship with you, and that we can learn how to worship you more regularly in our days, and especially, Lord, as we meet together on the day of worship. And so, Lord, this morning, please make plain to us what's before us in the Word of God, and I pray it in Christ's name, amen. So we're going to be looking at verse number 1 through 8 uh, in, our, in the Bible this morning, And you will quickly realize that the Gospel of Mark contains no birth narrative of Jesus' earlier life. There is no genealogical record to trace back his lineage like in other Gospels. Mark goes straight to proclaiming the Christological focus of the Gospel. So what is... What follows is the good news concerning Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. If you look at verse 1 of Mark chapter 1, it says, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that's where he starts. And of course, the Messiah is the pathway to being right with God. The Messiah's path was to be prepared by this herald in the wilderness. And the term beginning really serves to recall that it is God who initiates redemption on behalf of people. So then the redemptive activity of God, which provides salvation for people, is found right here in this passage of Scripture. Remember last week I said, Uh, Mark likes to use the term Son of Man, but if you notice in verse 1, it doesn't say Son of Man, it says Son of God. So immediately he's looking at presenting to us the Messiah. What could be more needful? What could be more joyful than the good news, the evangel, the joyful tidings of coming salvation promised by the prophetic word? See, Mark is actually giving us a forward-looking, end-time perspective of what the prophet Isaiah said. Now, if you remember what he said recorded in the book of Romans, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. Now, see, that's the kind of news we all need. We need good news, don't we? We get a lot of bad news every day. We need good news. In fact, that is what Mark is saying right in the beginning, that I have some real good news for you. Now, he says that in the context of people who did not have good news. They were steeped in apathy. They were steeped in hypocrisy. They were steeped in religious formalism. They were steeped in all kinds of confusion about what they were to expect... So that is the atmosphere in which the Gospel of Mark presents itself. And to us too. We live in the same kind of atmosphere in our, in our world today. That it is interesting the narrative does not start at any center city location. It starts in the wilderness. John is in the wilderness. That's the John the Baptist. And so John is... And the wilderness becomes a dominant, dominant motif in this prologue. If you notice in verse number 2, it says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. In verse 3, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So again, this wilderness mindset is in the mind of of Mark the writer of this gospel and What does he want to do? He wants to show us that the wilderness is a significant place in the Word of God Actually, there's three significant factors that will become apparent through this wilderness motif The first one is there's some guy speaking loudly and crying out in the wilderness all right, and he, there will be a herald in the wilderness. Secondly, we will look at the Lord in the wilderness and then the temptation in the wilderness. But today I'm going to look specifically at the herald in the wilderness because the wilderness does bring to our minds the first exodus through the wilderness of Canaan. That this wild region was chosen by God for the Baptists' work in order to take the people away from their ordinary occupations, take them away from their interests, in order to fix their minds and hearts on their own spiritual condition, and on this saving message uh, that is being given by this great herald, this strange man in the wilderness. So Mark wants to make his readers know that something is happening prophetically. Something is taking place prophetically. And if, of course, our text right here in verse 2 and 3 is really a quotation from Isaiah chapter 40 in verse number 3, and then also Malachi chapter 1 in verse number 2. But you notice he says in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, So he goes back to that, and what does Isaiah the prophet say? Well, he says the same thing that Mark records. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So see, this is something the people were hoping would happen. Now, in Isaiah, this is 700 years before john the baptist ever walked on the scene before his mother was pregnant with him and mary was pregnant with jesus so the the people almost forgot what the prophets were saying but this type of language is used also in malachi chapter 3 where it says now that's the last book of the old testament you may want to turn there there's two passages i want you to look at real quickly Because remember, Malachi is actually the last prophet. He was the last one who spoke for God. He was the last one who spoke on behalf of God. And if you notice in chapter 3, verse number 1, what he says. He says, Behold, I am going to send you my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord to whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts so Malachi chapter 3 verse number 1 is saying to them the people God's going to send you a messenger a prophet now remember why is it so significant in the gospel of Mark because God hasn't spoken for a prophet in 400 years It doesn't mean the word the Old Testament wasn't available. It was available. It was available in different translations. But God wasn't speaking through a prophet anymore. And so that becomes really significant because God promised the people someday, I'm going to raise up a messenger for you, and he's going to clear the way for the Messiah to come. And so let me just back up for a minute. What exactly is a prophet? What's an Old Testament prophet? Well, remember, an Old Testament prophet says, thus says the Lord. He speaks on behalf of God. The Lord first speaks to the prophet. Then the prophet turns around and speaks to the people. So God speaks directly to the prophet. He gives him direct revelation that comes from God. And each time the prophet speaks because there has been a prior situation. In each case of all the prophetic book. God never gives a word to the prophet for the prophet. But he gives the word to the prophet for the king. And for the priests. And for the people of Israel and Judah. For God's people. And so God always speaks to his prophets for his people. He speaks the words of a loving God to the people who actually need it. And sometimes they, when they need it, they don't think they need it. But yet God gives it to them. So God speaks when there's a problem amongst the people. When there's some crisis, some trouble, some issue, some need amongst the people. So the whole prophetic ministry is a loving God meeting the needs of his people. So God speaks direct revelation, but it is occasioned By any related need of God's people. If God's people need food, the prophet will speak about food. If God's people need discipline, the prophet will speak about discipline. If they need encouragement, the prophet will speak about encouragement. Usually it's a present and a future encouragement. If the people need hope, then the prophet will speak about hope. And specifically, the prophet will speak about the Messiah. The one who's going to come and deliver the people. And that's the case right here. That after 400 years of God not speaking through a prophet, now this messenger that God prophesied in the Old Testament is now standing in the wilderness. And he's proclaiming something in the wilderness. The Bible says it's a voice calling. What, it's the voice of God calling through a man. Clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert a highway for our God. So, in this passage, in Mark and in Isaiah 40, it is the message that announces the second exodus. The second exodus through the wilderness to the final deliverance prepared for God's people. So, Mark, what Mark is saying, Mark sees the coming of John, specifically John the baptizer, and Jesus to the wilderness, the fulfillment of the promised salvation of which the prophet Isaiah spoke of. So this is a really exciting time for what's going on in that part of the world, in that region. So that means the theme of fulfillment is of strategic importance in this gospel. This is the beginning of the joyful tidings of salvation and the intrusion of God, and the intrusion of the rule of God in the world, in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, the appearance of John the Baptizer is an end-time event of the first magnitude because John comes on the scene as a result of divine appointment in fulfillment of prophecy some 700 years before and now it's happening so god recalls the people from the cities from their occupations from their offices from the byways and the highways from their harms farms and from their pastures and he brings them into the wilderness because this voice is crying there this one man is crying there and so the appearance of John in the wilderness is very significant because John's appearance on the scene of the human scene is at a time where there was much religious and political confusion. But prophetically, the time of fulfillment was definitely ripe where it says in verse number 2, and it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. So he preached to a society that was spiritually deadened. They were spiritually shallow. The people that he spoke to were indifferent, and lackadaisical about spiritual matter, matters. A people affected by all kinds of subtle forms of hypocrisy. In a brief, really, search of Scripture and the religious context, exposes, really exposes the current spiritual conditions of the times in which he ministered. Generally, two spiritual conditions were evident when John began to preach. There was religious formality, and there was comfortable hypocrisy. These are both deadly sins. They're deadly to your heart for God. They're deadly to worshiping in spirit. They're deadly to everything that has to do with a right and a good relationship with God, a good understanding of what God's done. And so today, we, we still fight against that. We're still fighting against religious formality. We're still fighting against hypocrisy that, that creeps up in our own heart. We're, we're just going through the motions about, you know, we know the words to say. We, we've been around it for a while. We know the passages. And yet, our heart kind of gets numb and cold to the things of God. See, this is where John begins to preach. He's pre- preaching to people that are in this condition and so, in fact, if you look back uh, to Matthew chapter 3, verse number 7, you see that John the Baptist has some harsh words to say to the religious establishment of his day. Notice what it says in Matthew 3, in verse number 7. Jesus, of course, had the same harsh words, but look what John said in Matthew 3, 3 verse 7. But this is is verse seven. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham the axe is already laid at the roots of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what is John saying to them? He is saying to them, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. That's what, you, that's what he's saying to them. And he doesn't have kind words for them. Because these are supposed to be the people leading the people. The priests leading the people. These are the people teaching the people. And they're not living their life. Their heart is not with God. They are just religious formalists. They're they're deeply concerned about external law. They're deeply concerned about religion. And you know what? Usually people who are don't usually neglect their religious duty. They know what religious duty is about, but they have no heart They don't go before the Lord and express feelings of repentance and a deep sense of sin, knowing that God will forgive them and cleanse them. See, they forget the meaning of the act of worship and the spirit in which it's to be done before the Lord. They forget that. And so John is speaking to those people. He's speaking to us too. And then that leads into a second thing, and that's comfortable hypocrisy. The prophet Malachi actually diagnosed this spiritual malady. That is why Malachi the prophet says that someday God will send someone who will set things in order. What is he going to set in order? He's going to set in order and tip on its head all religious formalism. He's going to expose religious hypocrisy. And he's going to show everybody by a clear path this is the only way to God. This is the only way to be made right with God. This is the, there's no other way. All your religion is garbage and it's to be thrown on the pile, of, the pile of garbage. So what happens here is that Malachi is saying to us, God's not pleased with you. In fact, just turn back there to Malachi real quick. Uh, Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, verse 10. Because remember, this is the last word of the prophet. And Malachi reveals the condition of the people at the time. Let me just give you some quick historical background of Malachi. There's a decree from uh, from Cyrus that comes to rebuild the temple. For 15 years, it stopped. They started rebuilding it, and it stopped for 15 years. In the second year of Darius, Haggai and Zechariah come and are building the temple. And here in Malachi, they're finished with the temple. It's been finished at least some 75 to 100 years, and the priests have been ministering, and the people have been worshiping in the temple. There's no pressure, there is no invasion, there's no crisis. Nothing's really happening. Nothing to be built, no temple to be built, nothing to be done. All there is to be done is to carry out the work of God. Now, repeated religious routine could be deadly if it is not accompanied by examination. See the people were spiritually comfortable and the Lord reveals that he is not pleased with the people. Look at Malachi chapter 1 verse 10. It says, "Oh that there w- oh that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you," says the Lord of hosts. So God comes right out Before the people and saying, I know you're going to the temple. I know you're offering the sacrifices. I know that you're going all for your religious duties. But I'm not pleased with you. And why isn't he pleased with them? In Malachi's day, the priests were failing in their duty. The offerings were blemished and shoddy second bests. And the service in the temple was wearisome to them. So get this. They're living their... life in a shoddy way before god they're not taking care of their sin they're not taking care of their relationship with god they're not heeding what it's saying in the word of god and they're just going through the motions well god's saying i don't like that i'm displeased with you with that kind of activity so you see their hearts got cold and numb though they were really unaware of their condition outwardly things are in order But inwardly, in the heart, they're not right. The Lord, through the prophet, gets to the heart of the matter and he exposes hypocrisy. In fact, when you read through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had his view of the religious establishment also. Even though I'm not going there today and it was not pretty, Jesus said to them, Remember what he says? Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too, outwardly, appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy. And lawlessness now that is who John is speaking to. Can you get that audience? Can you relate to that audience? See, John wants us to be there that 's how he 's writing this gospel. He wants us to be there, and he wants us to be in the crowd. He wants to to listen to the message. He wants us to see what's going on. He wants us to experience this new event that's happening. Now this man, this strange man is on the scene and this man has a mission. John the Baptist has a very specific mission related to the formalists and the religious play actors. He wants true worshipers. And the only way God can accumulate true worshipers is to clear the table. <laughs> that's how he does it. And that's John's mission. Look what it says in verse number two. Here's his mission. John's mission is really clear, clearly presented in these first couple of verses. And it's written as Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice crawling in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So here's the mission of John, Luke one seventeen, adds something in there, and it says that he will go as a forerunner. So John the baptizer was a forerunner, and a forerunner is someone who really who is either sent before to take observations, someone who could act as a spy, someone who is uh, who comes in advance to play. To a place where the rest are to follow. And that's kind of the way it's being used here by John the Baptist. That John the Baptist comes to a place and he's preparing something for everybody to follow. He's laying the path for everybody to follow. He's like a point man. So according to John the Baptist himself, he was the only forerunner of Messiah. There was nobody else except him. And he had come to prepare a way to point people in the right direction. In fact, the very heart of John the Baptist's message is preparation for the Messiah, preparation for Jesus Christ. Now, an additional use of the term forerunner may be used when considering John's message as speaking something that was previously spoken before. Now, what does that mean? In other words, John's message is really not new. All right? It was old as the prophets. So John's message was an ignored and a forgotten message. It was He was on the scene, and some would say that he was the last Old Testament prophet to preach what was long forgotten and unheeded. However, his message was pointing to something new that was going on. He will prepare the way for who? He will make the way ready for who? For the Lord, for the Messiah. See, the divine promise of Messiah concerning the forerunner's work is that he would prepare and make fully ready the road before him, putting it into a fit condition for the Lord to travel over. See, roads in the east were generally poorly maintained. And a coming king, what would he do? He would send ahead of him a representative. And that representative would assure that all the roads were cleared and prepared. And sometimes roads had to be built. So when the king came down with all his entourage, that road would be just ready for him. So spiritually speaking... This was John's advanced task to remove hindrances in the hearts of God's people. In other words, to remove the hindrances in the people's hearts. For what reason? So that they would be ready to receive the Lord. So that they would be ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. So the picture is for the winding roads to be made straight and for the rough roads, Obstacle-ridden roads to be leveled and made safe for the coach of the Lord before his arrival. Spiritually speaking, John called for moral and spiritual alterations in the hearts and the lives of people. But how would that happen? How would that take place? See, the messenger was to cleanse and purify the worship of God's people. And John was to bring a large segment of the Jews and the Gentile population back to the religion of heart, the religion that truly brought people to worship God. So the very heart of John the Baptist's message was to prepare the people for the Messiah. In fact, the passage that we read in the Old Testament is recorded also in the Gospel of Luke, and it further explains John's mission, and it says there in Luke 1.17, you don't have to turn there, but listen to what it says, it was he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, and this is what he's to do, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so that was the, actually that's the last two verses in the prophet Malachi. So Malachi left the last two verses before 400 years, God not speaking to a prophet, and now it's picked up by John. And the power John had in his message was to turn the heart of the people that's how he was going to make the paths smooth and straight that's how he was going to restore a spirit in the people to receive the messiah also at a later time to bring back the spirit of the nation and to make ready of people prepared for the lord and that is that the fathers would now gain wisdom to turn their children back to god in the right way so how is that to take place well That brings me to the actual message of John. If you notice back in Mark. There's the message that John has. He's to prepare by preaching. And if you notice, it says in verse 4 of chapter 1. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching. Or proclaiming, announcing he's the herald. What did he preach? A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So all the country of Judea were going out to him, it says, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So so how does John lay the path straight? How does he clear the hearts of the people? He does it by preaching this message of a baptism of repentance. So the baptism was a baptism that was characterized by repentance or turning from sin. However, his baptism was not intended to induce repentance, remember, but rather to administer, for it to be administered to people who were repentant. All right? Now, that's very important. See, people being prepared, right, and ready to repent of their sins, that they were, they were people who already were convicted of their sins and are ready to say, now what do I do? So that meant that repentance alone fitted the person for this baptism. Now repentance, what is that again? It's a deep change of mind. The Greek word means change of mind, but it's a deep change of mind which issues in a definite turning from one's sin. That is an altered attitude toward one's sin, which has its proper fruit in a deliberate change of conduct for the better. So John the Baptist preached repentance of sin, paving the way for pointing sinners to the Messiah. Now, he was to do that by preaching this baptism of repentance. So repentance is really preparation to enter into a covenant relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. That John's baptism recalls God's foundational covenant with Israel at Sinai. That the Israelites signified acceptance of their covenant relationship with God by washing their clothes and purifying themselves before they entered into the covenant of Sinai. That's found in Exodus 19. So such washing symbolized moral and spiritual transformation necessary to enter into a covenant relationship with God. That John's baptism of repentance corresponds favorably with the essential elements of preparation for the day of the Lord in the original Sinai covenant, in other words, that the only way that the, the path would be made straight and the table would be cleared and the hearts would be cleansed, that when a person would come in repentance of their sins, and that sins of what? Sins of religious formalism, sins of hypocrisy, sins of disbelief, sins of being numb towards God, sins of worshiping without heart. See, sins that would bring a person under God's condemnation instead of salvation. So the physical rite of baptism itself did not produce this spiritual result for the forgiveness of sins. But submission to the baptism as an outward testimony of a person's repentance from sin, that was the condition of receiving divine forgiveness because it, again notice what he says here he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins isn't that's isn't that's where that's really where it's at that the people's sins needed to be forgiven but they needed to be forgiven by God himself and how how could their sins be forgiven it's not by John's baptism they were forgiven it's by the one he's going to proclaim. The one who takes away the sin of the world. It's, about, it's by the Messiah. Now, this, the meaning of the, the word, really, the, the root meaning of remission or forgiveness is really a sending away or a dismissal of the sins of the heart. It speaks of a cancellation of sin without demanding the deserved punishment that goes with that sin. Such forgiveness... Of sins is based on the vicarious sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. In other words, the sins are taken from the sinner and are sent so far away as in such a way that even God will not find them on the day of judgment. See, that was good news. That's the gospel of good news to have your sins canceled and forgiven, and sent away from you forever. That's why the psalm says it like this, as far as the east is from the west, the east and the west don't meet. They keep going out in their direction. Like a writing blotted out on the wall. Here's a list of your sins on the wall. It's blotted out, it's clean, it's a clean slate. And then Micah says, cast into the depth of the sea. At a certain point when something is cast into the sea, it gets to a depth and it's crushed as, it was, as, as if it was never there because of the pressure of the elements and the depth of the ocean. See, that's how the prophet wanted the people to see how they can be made right with God. He wanted them to have their own hearts cleared, their own pathway clear so they can rejoice So they can actually say, this is good news. Can there be anything more sweeter to a poor sinner than your sins are canceled and sent away and dismissed forever? Can there ever be anything more joyful than that? The people's sins and guilt had to be vanquished in preparing them to meet the Lord. That's the only way. There's nobody who's going to ever be in the presence of God that has not had their sins dealt with by Christ. Matter of fact, if they have not had their sins dealt with by Christ, they will not be there. Because they cannot stand in the presence of God without the sacrifice of Christ. So John had plenty of candidates for baptism. Once they heard this message, look what it says there. They were coming from everywhere. In fact, the Greek text means that In your mind, picture a people, a line of people so long, you cannot see the end of it. And they kept coming, and they kept coming, and they kept coming. Why? This is the news that thrilled their heart. This is the news that made them alive. This is the news that the prophets have been prophesying so many times in the Old Testament, and now they are coming. But I notice what they're doing. They're coming to the River Jordan to be baptized by John, And this baptism was a baptism by immersion. And look what they're doing at the end of verse number 5. They're what? Confessing their sins, plural. Confessing their sins, plural. Meaning there are so many sins. It's like a mountain, a mountain of sins. They're confessing. And they're doing it willingly because they know if God can forgive them, I'm going to confess all of them. I'm going to give all to Him. I'm not going to forget one of them that I can remember. And, of course, many of them we don't remember, and God takes care of those too. Thank the Lord for that. But confessing, the word confessing, actually means to speak the same thing. That means the people repenting of their sins and coming for baptism were also openly agreeing with the divine verdict concerning their sin, that they were under God's judgment. True confession implies our willingness to call our sins by the name that God gives them. See, it's a willingness to say, this is my sin. And Lord, i am sinned this against you. This is my hypocrisy. This is my religiosity and formalism that I know is sin now before you, that I worship you not with a heart. I worship me. I worship other means that try to get me saved. I have my own salvation going. I didn't need you, Lord. I try to be a good person, and that's my salvation. No, sorry. What did you do do with all this? Who took care of all your sins? Who took care of this mountain of sins? If you can do it, Who took care of it? Your goodness could do it? Your goodness like a little molehill against the mountain of your sins. Only Christ could take care of your sins. See, that's the point. That's his message for the whole gospel. See, they had no heart. They didn't come before the Lord to express feelings of repentance and deep sense of sin and sin or gratitude or love coupled with a heart of obedience, submission, devotion. But now they have. They are coming. And that's why they're coming. Because they want their sins forgiven by God. They want to know they're right with God. They want that to be clear. And then they want to go on and just worship God and wait for His coming. So Jesus really would preach the same message of repentance. If you notice in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, it says, When Jesus come on, comes on the scene, and now after John had been taken and could custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So John preaches about what? Repentance. Jesus preaches about repentance and who? what are we supposed to preach about? Repentance. Right? Repentance is a vital part of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repentance is a conscious recognition of you, you yourself as a sinner, and you are turning to a Savior who can forgive your sins and cast cancel your sins and make you right with God and reconcile you to himself because you were an enemy to God, but now you can be reconciled and become God's friend. So Scripture always joins repentance and remission or forgiveness of sins that, that means repentance is necessary for forgiveness. You cannot be forgiven by God unless you turn to God, confess your sin so He can forgive you. Repentance and forgiveness are necessary to be prepared for the presence of God. you realize that? You cannot go into the presence of God without repentance and confession of your sin. And the only one you can come to Is the one who John is pointing them to. Remember, John's not the one who could save them. Matter of fact, it's not even his message that saves them. His message prepares their heart to receive the Messiah because John can't save them. John said, I must decrease, but Christ must increase. So he was just the messenger and he's going to fade off the scene. In fact, We know the end of John the Baptist's life. He had his head cut off. That's where it ended. And Christ says that he was the greatest. There was nobody greater than John, who ever lived. That's an amazing statement. So the last word of God came through this man. And next week, I am going to look at his identity and, and his humility. But this morning, because of our baptism... I'm going to end right there. But I do like to say before I close that this message this morning is really a truly important one because it does lay the foundation of how anyone, whoever they are, is prepared in their heart in order to come into the presence of God and to worship God properly. So repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way that anyone could ever be saved. If you, this morning, have never repented of your sin and confessed it to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked Him to be your Lord and Savior, you need to be thinking about that. Because, see, this is gospel is not speaking to the person next to you it's speaking to you this message is for all people everywhere no matter who they may be and that's why it's so important because we are the same kind of people that lived when mark wrote this gospel and when john preached in the wilderness we are the same kind of people you know what if we heard john i pray we would have been in that line too if we heard john preach I pray that we would have been pointed to the Messiah Jesus Christ and re- were ready in our heart to receive him as our own Lord and Savior and go on to live for him. See, I pray that for you and for anyone who has never heard that message and has never come to Jesus Christ. And the reason why you haven't come is because you have been caught in religious formalism. You have been caught with the mindset that says, well, I was born in this religion and i'm going to die in that religion well you may i pray you don't no matter where you were born or what you were born into it has to be laid aside and because you're not trusting in a religion you're not trusting in a church to save you you're trusting in the person of jesus christ who died on the cross who paid for your sin who satisfied the wrath of the father so when you come to him and confess your sin you Receive him by faith, and he gives you this free gift of eternal life because of your confession, because you can't save yourself. Only Jesus can save you, and when you do that, he saves you. And you know what he does? He sends your sin as far as the east is from the west, and never will it come to judge you again, because Christ took care of every one of them. See, that is so important for everyone to understand And not to ignore or to lay it aside, but to say to yourself, where do I stand before God today? Where do I stand today before God? If I were to die tonight, where would I go? Is my heart prepared for the presence of God? See, that is the question. And you know what? That is the most important question. There's no greater question than that that when I die and I open my eyes where will I be will I be in the presence of God if you have an unprepared heart if you do not repent of your sin and confess Christ as Lord and Savior I guarantee you will not be in the presence of God because God can't let you in because you're still in your sin either you're going to die in the Lord or you're going to die in your sin that's it there's no other way to die so see, that is a clear message. Do you see how the road is cleared away? you see all the obstacles cleared away? That's John's message. He clears it away so the people can now come. Without stumbling all over this religious formalism with all these religions and all this stuff going on, all, they can just come. And they did. They came. And they got their heart ready to receive the Messiah. See, that's, that's who we are too. I had to do it, uh, and I had to hear the message And the Lord had to clear my religiosity out of my soul so I can just listen to the gospel and believe it. And ever since then, He's changed my heart, forgiven my sins. And how did I learn that? I learned it by the Word of God. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Everybody who's being baptized, you you can be dismissed right now to the back room. pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you that the prophets spoke and when they spoke people could have said Lord after 400 years I guess God's not speaking anymore through a prophet and they probably would have been right except they didn't read on to say that you would send another messenger who would speak and that messenger was John the Baptist And Lord, he spoke and he prepared the way so people can hear the true message. They can believe in Christ and be saved and be made right with you. Oh, Lord, I pray today that the word of God would resonate in the heart of the people and to those who don't know you yet and that they too can be saved. And I pray, Lord, even our people being baptized this morning, that they too were not always believers. They thought they were. But until the gospel convicted them of sin and showed them that Jesus Christ is the only way, they were going on their merry life and their own life and their own path until you arrested them and that you brought to light the truth and then they turned to you and confessed you as Lord and Savior. And now, Lord, they want to be baptized in identification of what you have done in their behalf. And I pray, Lord, as we consider the the death of them going down into the water, of them standing in the the water as a picture of their old life and then going down into the water of their burying their sin and then coming back up out of the water, representing the resurrection of Christ and new life for all who come to Christ. I pray, Lord, that would be a reality for all who have never trusted you but will trust you. Lord, so bless our time now and those who are coming to give testimony.